Coming up on today's show, we're going to talk about the Russia-Ukraine conflict and what it's done about cryptocurrency. We're going to have a fascinating discussion about the right ways and the wrong ways to kill. What makes a war crime? Plus, animals sleep. We think some sleep differently than others. It's an endless topic of discussion, and we'll talk about it. Now, we're going to talk about cryptocurrency, and this is really interesting. Um, it continues to find its way into the headlines for one reason or another with, you know, pretty decent regularity. Um, it played a role in the convoy protest thing. You remember that, right? When GoFundMe shut down the crowdsourcing venture, uh, they switched over to crypto. Uh, it's become an election issue in some ways, at least for the leadership of the uh, Conservative Party, Pierre Polyev, talking about uh, cryptocurrency. Also, uh, Alberta Conservatives, Jason Kenney, talking about how Alberta can be a hub for cryptocurrency. So it's definitely making news that way and also internationally. Uh, regarding the Ukraine-Russia situation. It's actually um, a big, big part of the Ukraine-Russia situation. To find out why, we're going to chat now with Mona Hasgi, who's an associate professor in financial accounting and IFRS at HEC Montreal. Hello there, Mona. How are you today? Hi, how are you? Greetings from Montreal. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Um, you know, when we talk about cryptocurrency and the situation in Ukraine and Russia, I, I, I don't know if a lot of people are aware of just how much of a role it's played. I mean, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars have been sent to Ukraine in cryptocurrency to help fund the defense effort there, right? Exactly, actually. This this period of war is, is, is kind of exciting time for, for cryptocurrency because, like, uh, it it's kind of... Uh, uh, heightened the interest of of everyone since we we discovered like the role that uh, that that virtual currency can actually uh, play uh, as a support for those who are uh, in need, but also it, uh, as a deviation tools for those who aspire to to operate beyond the rules. So, yeah. crypto was not only good for Ukraine but also for Russia at the same time. So it's kind of double edged sword. Yeah, the moment definitely and uh, yeah so um, back back to the back to to Ukraine I, uh, it was it, it's what started actually with a, with a simple tweet from uh, the government uh, Ukrainian government representative mentioning that uh, you know their country was now accepting donation in different type of cryptocurrency and actually few few minutes following that that tweet millions of uh, dollars were raised in few minutes, while uh, traditional donation would have uh, taken a while before getting on the Ukrainian accounts. That's what so, it, that's, uh, that's the key factor here. That's why it's so attractive, right? Yeah. It's, it's instant. Exactly. Actually, the use of crypto instead of uh, traditional financial institution it, it has made actually money transfer uh, much faster, more agile. So you can imagine that in time in, in war, time is very crucial. So if you if you do a bank transfer, you have to wait for two or three days. Yeah. In crypto, you just send the money, and you know in five ten minutes the the transaction is done, and you can access your money as long as you have your a private key. Now, the other side of it, as you say, a lot of these ways that it works, you know, separate or different than traditional methods that make it so good for Ukraine also make it really good for Russia. And that's a concern when you're talking about economic pressure, sanctions. Mm. We know everything the West is trying to do to hurt Russia economically. Mm. Crypto is a bit of an out, right? Yeah, actually, exactly. Because, well... The, the fact that the crypto are, you know, borderless, are disowned, the light, those 
advantage they gave um, Ukraine uh, advantage for the war because they were able to raise money to fund uh, the army and fund the conflict. But at the same time, one can imagine that, uh, you know, Putin and the Russian oligarchy are probably as well taking advantage of uh, of this uh, decentralized nature of cryptocurrency to evade sanction or at the very least to, to mitigate their effectiveness. What Actually, about- you know, when we speak about virtual currency, they are quite effective in bypassing the checkpoint that governments rely on to block the execution of, of, of transaction because what government usually do is like you know blocking or freezing uh, transaction and 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 government can do that using the banks so in the absence of you know interme- of financial institution or any intermediary what happens is actually it takes um, it, even if it, it, it they doesn't uh, like the government doesn't have any way to block the money and even if they have you know a way to access the virtual cr- uh, currency portfolio and to to block it or to freeze it it takes a, a few minutes to transfer the funds to another to hundred other accounts which makes the blocking operation even if they do exist they are still less effective so you know we can imagine that you know to in order to mitigate the sanction, you know, the Putin's ally would use hundreds or thousands of accounts to carry yeah. out numerous transactions on a very small scale in order, you know, to move their wealth, for instance. So, and, and um, just to finish on the Russian part, actually, they are quite uh, advanced also on this domain because, you know, the Russian government have been announced that they are developing their own central bank digital currency, which would be a kind of digital rubble, and that can eventually be used to trade with other country without fear of sanction. And and it's and they can also use, you know, hacking technique to, to help um, Russian actors steal digital currency and make up for those uh, lost revenue to, uh, due to sanction. And, and and Russia is not the first country to do that. Like uh, we we have we have seen by the past, like country like Iran or North Korea using cryptocurrency to mitigate the effect of Western sanctions. So the question then, when we see this kind of activity, and I mean part of the allure of cryptocurrency and part of its you know its advertising feature, its cachet is the fact that it's unregulated. But when we see mm-hmm. something like this and the skirting of international sanctions, does that put more pressure on governments to? come up with some way to try and regulate this. Exactly, exactly. That's the whole point of uh, me and my colleague writing the article, is actually that the current war has finally put the world of virtual currency on the spotlight. And, yeah. you know, never never before has either the media or the polit- political interest been uh, so uh, uh, resounding. So actually, uh, since... Uh, since the start of the war, we have been great progress. Like the in the U.S., uh, we have been uh, like uh, Joe Biden uh, released uh, a new um, uh, decree, uh, you know, like urging uh, government to take uh, this matter in hand and urging like all country to to try and to reach out for some you know international cohesion in, in the way they they regulate they they can regulate um, cryptocurrency and actually. Um, 
there is today there is already few regulations that exist. You know, in in Canada, we have been in trying to regulate this a bit for a few years now, but still, like there is there is um, there is like regulation like uh, know your customer anti money laundering regulation. Yeah. Because, but but we are we are there is still a lot of uh, let's say black holes where uh, where at some point there is um, the, the 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 cryptocurrency universe is still most are regulated than regulated it, because even if those regulations exist they are still not effectively used and um, and the at the same time, there is a bright side, because if you think about it, actually, cryptocurrency can, can cannot really afford like to be cut off from the world, from the rest of the financial system. So even if that's the, the goal at the end today, if you can go back and forth between you know regular currency and cryptocurrency and vice versa, most of the customers will lose interest in crypto. So. It is the whole future of crypto that is at stake here. So, so, so for now, the crypto they still have strong ties with the traditional system because at some point people want to convert back yeah. to regular currency and vice versa. You know, so which means that for that there is there is this, this uh, currently this limit that uh, you know cryptocurrency are still um, you know relying on the traditional financial system so at some point we will have we will need like to have regulation that can be established and can be overseen and can be you know which at the end might make actually all the cryptocurrency transactions traceable uh, in the same way that, uh, you know, uh, we, we can trace regular financial uh, transfers. But the challenge would be then to find the right balance because yes. it would be good to frame, to regulate, but, you know, we, we, want, we don't want to lose the advantage that makes crypto a fast and efficient tool for financial exchange as, as it was the case with the donation for Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. So the, the that, that that this balance is what's what's actually is taking time to find, and actually I, I think that's what all the government are now working on is try, to try to to come up with you know regulations that would not at the end you know uh, you know. Regulate too much, or you know, delete what's what's good, what and what the, well, the good side or the good uh, the advantage that that, uh, that comes with uh, with cryptocurrencies. Yeah, it, it's a fascinating topic, Mota. Thanks so much for your mm-hmm. insight. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You bet. That is Mona Hasgui, who's an associate professor in financial accounting and IFRS. We're going to switch gears here and have a conversation that, like I've said before, I, I understand it. I do. But at the same time, I don't. It, it, because it's it's a conversation about, ultimately, what is legal and what is not legal when it comes to war. What is legal and not legal when it comes to killing the enemy. That's that that's what it comes down to. Which, on the surface, is is strange if you think about it because, I mean, that's... That's the ultimate sin, right? I, I think it's I think it's the first commandment. You can't kill. I mean, it, it's 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 what's worse than killing somebody? Well, there are ways to make it worse 
especially in wartime. And that depends on, you know, who the person is and the weapons used and all these sorts of things. So I get it. I understand that. But at the same time, the end purpose is the same. So it's an interesting conversation. So when we're talking about it, how do we determine what is legal, what isn't legal? Who determines that? What's the consequences? I mean, there's, it's, a, it's a very interesting discussion and one that's playing out right now as a result of what we saw in Bucha, Ukraine, over the weekend. Clear evidence of what we call and consider to be war crimes, right? Um, so now there's a discussion about who should be held accountable, how should they be held accountable, um, and the questions go on. So we're going to have a discussion about that now. Joining us to try and give us some insight is Nisha Shaw, who's an associate professor of international relations at the University of Ottawa. Uh, professor, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us today. No, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It, it You know, on the surface, do you agree? Does this whole war crimes discussion in some way seem a little strange? Because no matter what action is taken or weapons are used or whatever, the end goal is the same. You're trying to kill and maim people. And yet we're putting rules around how you can do that. It is a strange conversation, isn't it? I think it, uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, that how do we draw this distinction between what kind of violence is legitimate and what kind of violence is not Ill, uh, and what kind of violence is illegitimate and sh- should be rendered illegal? And I think the first place to start is that clearly this is an illegal war. The, uh, Russia's aggression in Ukraine is not condoned by any kind of laws or morals in the, that underwrite the international system. But then when we have war itself, when we talk about active combat, the laws of war draw lines between what we should and should not do in war. And as you said, the end result is often that people die. And yeah. often we use weapons that are designed to make them die in specific ways. So why are we, where does it, where do we come up with the notion that something is a crime and something is not a crime in war? And that, um, I think what we fail to often understand in war is war is brutal. So I think a lot of the media attention strikes us as the rules must have been broken. And in many cases, they are. What's happened in Bukha, the yeah. uh, accusation of rape, those are clear acts that have been um, stipulated by international law as acts that cannot be uh, legitimately done in war. They are war crimes. But on the flip side, a lot of public attention has been focused on the types of weapons used and the impact of those weapons. And many of those weapons are legitimate to use. Uh, Canada has sent them, NATO countries have been asked to send more, and those, those weapons are brutal in their effects, and they can often kill people and are often designed to kill people. So war is this very complicated thing that it is actually a set of actions, a set of violent acts that were legitimated to do. But Mm -hmm. there are right ways and wrong ways to do war. And that's what the laws of war try to do. Many people assume that the laws of war try to prevent war. Actually, there are rules to say how should war be properly done. Which, yeah, I mean, and I guess it makes sense. You need to have these rules. Uh, Yeah, okay. So, first of all, when we talk about these, these rules... Who, who who comes up with the rules? How do we determine? Um, you know, is there an international accepted level of violence, or I mean, how do we come up with? Okay, that's okay, but this isn't in the in the theater of war. So the the laws of war we have now are, by all accounts, are relatively recent. They have a history that uh, is rooted in the mid nineteenth century. 
um, in the development of international law. And they come from a really genuine concern to actually what we call minimize the violence of war. That war is inherently something brutal and violent. And if it is unavoidable, how could we make it what they call more humane? That's why the laws of war are actually called international humanitarian law. It's about trying to minimize the violence. And so these have been developed over time in a variety of treaties and conventions. The most probably central is what we call the Geneva Convention that outline a series of like protections that civilians should not be intentionally targeted, but also a series of restrictions that certain weapons, certain kinds of weapons should not be used. But even though you say certain things should not be done in war, it implies that actually certain things are permissible in war. And I think one of the brutal facts about war is that for all of the violence that's there, most of what happens in war is actually permitted. And the crimes of war are the ones that get most attention and they deserve the attention that they get. But they're actually minuscule compared to the many acts of violence that allow war to happen and allow war to be waged. And so when we're defining a crime of war, we look to international law, which is uh, implemented by a variety of different um, bodies. But really, it's different countries who have signed on to these agreements. Increasingly, there's been talk of the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court. And all of these kind of agencies together try to uphold the system of law. Now, the one thing that you could do to uphold law is also do your counterattack, right? Which is sure. why there's been all this attention to will NATO yeah. NATO intervene. Um, and so that's kind of how the system of international law has been developed and how it's been, been implemented. Um, and then there's the discussion of, well, how do we use those rules to distinguish between the acts of violence and which ones are legitimate? that people are using to defend themselves from attack and which ones are actually acts of atrocity. Um, And the distinction here in war is not how many people have died, but how they have died. So you could attack, uh, you, you could wage an attack in which civilians might die, but if you didn't intentionally try to kill them and you used a weapon, a weapon that is actually sanctioned by international law, it's not actually illegal. And you could kill one person in a method that is considered illegal, and that would be the crime, whereas killing a thousand people would be seen as legitimate. Yeah, and so I think there's this kind of absurdity in the laws of war um, in which uh, you you could go either which way on this when you say that the laws of war are absurd. You could either say, well, why have any rules at all? Right. Because if the end result is you open the segment with the end result is that everybody's going to die. Why do we care how we do it? How how can there be a humane way to kill people? But the other question then to ask is, why does war have this legal apparatus, um, this moral value that is ingrained in our very political systems? Right. So at four o'clock today, the Canadian government is issuing you know, the the budget, and one of the key uh, headlines around it is, are we increasing defense spending? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so a lot of our resources go to kind of the apparatus of war. Um, And I think lots of people would say, well, we need that. We need to be able to defend ourselves. And once you 
you you get there, then you say, okay, well, what actions are permissible and what actions are not permissible if we were to to use violence even to defend ourselves? Um, Nisha, I still have so much I want to ask you. Can you hang on for a couple of minutes and we'll come back? Sure. Oh, I appreciate it very much. We're talking with Nisha Shaw, who is a um, professor in uh, international relations at the University of Ottawa. We'll take a quick break and continue the conversation right after this. All right, we're talking about war crimes. What constitutes a war crime? Who determines? And um, trying to wrap our heads around the whole concept because it's interesting. And we're getting some help from Nisha Shaw, who's an associate professor in international relations at the University of Ottawa. Nisha, thanks so much for uh, sticking around for a little longer because uh, I have a lot of questions. I appreciate your time very much today. No problem. I uh, I enjoy speaking about this. <laughs> well, in in a limited perspective, I suppose. <laughs> I hear exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Um, when we talk about weaponry, like you said, Canada's um, sending a lot of weapons. A lot of NATO countries, a lot of Western countries, sending weapons to help Ukraine defend themselves in the face of Russian aggression. That's the story, right? Um, some weapons are okay, and others aren't. The question I have is, how do we determine that? Like, are they tested or is it after first use? Like, how do we come around to say, because, I mean, it's as minuscule as, okay, you can use a bullet that um, fragments when it hits whatever it's traveling towards, unfortunately, people usually. But if it spreads after it hits the body, that's illegal. Can fragment? Okay. But it can't spread. Like, how do we make those kinds of distincts? Are they tested? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So... And then how how does the testing take place? I think that's one of the things that your yeah. your question is really highlighted. Some of that testing happens in the laboratory, and the history of bullets has very much been about uh, testing it in you know live and dead animals and ballistic soap or ballistic gelatin. But the crux of the issue in terms of determining whether, let's say, a specific weapon or even a specific bullet is legitimate goes back to those laws that I was describing that emerged in the mid to late 19th century. And there's a principle in the um, that has progressed over time called the principle of preventing unnecessary suffering and superfluous injury. So okay. basically, if you use a kind of bullet, you know, what? basically the question is this, what kind of hole in the head is it acceptable to produce? Is something overkill and would something else just be good enough to accomplish what you want to do? So that is there a kind of suffering that a weapon would inflict that really would be what we call inhumane, right? This is why chemical weapons have been banned. It's why landmines have been banned. And uh, as we're speaking, there is a meeting in Geneva to look at the use of kind of explosive munitions in highly populated urban areas, right? Do these cause wounds that really are excessive to what's necessary? Some of that, as I said, is done in a laboratory. Some of that becomes clear after they've been used, right? So that you see the consequences, let's say, of landmines would be a great example, something that was widely used in the late 20th century seen as legitimate to use, and increasingly we saw that both in war and after war, um, the effects on civilians and the kind of maiming they did to human bodies was considered inhumane, and they were they were banned. It was a, a ban that Canada, in fact, uh, was a key participant in. So, so 
is yeah, there sorry. is there like a that's kind of the parameters is is there like a I, I don't know if you would call it like a a guiding principle or like a vision is there is there is there sort of okay well this is our standard as the international groups that take a look at whether or not a weapon will be deemed legitimate or illegal is there sort of okay this is this is the qualifying like i mean like you say i mean quote unquote humanely or with as little additional suffering or superfluous su- suffering i get it but is, is that sort of the guiding principle here is that stated anywhere Yeah, so the principle is stated in a number of conventions. I would say probably the most recent is Article 35 of the Geneva Conventions that I mentioned, which were adopted in 1977. So you have that principle. But if I were to ask you, well, what counts as suffering? What counts as unnecessary? uh, How would you answer that question? And so when weapons are being evaluated, there is, kind of this principle, but how do you actually consider Define what that, that would mean? In, yeah, in technical terms, right? In the actual design of a weapon. And that is a very, uh, like, it, it's an extensive process. Um, it involves a lot of scientists who work on, let's say, you know, weapons design. It a lot involves a lot of international lawyers, diplomats, and non-governmental organizations, um, of which the International Committee for the Red Cross has been always been a key participant, amongst many others, who evaluate, um, you know, what are the effects of this hypothetically, or they look at battlefield injuries to say, well, what have been okay. the consequences of these weapons? Another criteria um, that I should mention for a weapon is also what we call the principle of distinction, so that it should be something that does not um, intentionally target civilians, or it should be something in which if civilians die, it's it's kind of what we call collateral damage. The intention should not be to cause extensive civilian um, death. So, like that can't be the focus of what you're doing. And that can't... Yeah, and so this is why cluster munitions, which were used extensively in the Second World War in the air bombing of, of European cities, um, eventually have been, were banned in, I believe it's 2007, because the wide reach of the little drop bomblets, they call that, are released by a cluster munition can't distinguish, they cover such a wide area that there's no way to say, oh, this is only going to hit this right. factory that's producing weapons. Um, and so this is why the accusation that Russia may have used um, cluster munitions, that would constitute a war crime or constitute what we would call a violation of international law. Right, right. Because it's, bad, it, it's not permissible. But your ultimate question of, like, what's the standard? It's a, It's a moral standard that's very difficult to actually say well you should design it in material like with a with this kind of blueprint in this way but not in that way ultimately it should be the most effective and efficient method of killing a fellow human basically in well not necessarily like chemical weapons are really effective and efficient sure fair fair they're they're seen as inhumane right so there is a sense that you shouldn't something like I said shouldn't be overkill, yeah, right? And yeah. the, the fact that you can kill somebody, but you can overkill someone is also a very kind of strange set of terminologies. But um, like the the bullet we have right now, the NATO standard, the five point five six 
millimeter bullet has this very long storied history about whether it should even have been been adopted and um, was it as cruel as the bullet, the expanding bullet, the one that you described yeah, as yeah. flattening? Um, and they looked at the wounds and said, well, the wounds look worse. It, this oh, is a post-Vietnam. But the mechanism by which the actual bullet worked, it fragmented. It didn't flatten in the body. And that was, was the difference, yeah. Nisha, unfortunately, was, I am out of time. Yes, I, I, yeah, I, absolutely. I got to go, but I mean, I, I could talk about this for hours. We'll have you back on and, and continue this discussion because it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating. It really is. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you very much. You bet. That's Nisha Shaw. Have a little fun. Get sciencey. We like to do that on the show every once in a while. We're going to talk about sleep and animals, right? And all animals sleep, as far as we know, maybe. Uh, now, what about sharks? You've probably heard, I know I always heard, that sharks have to keep moving. If they stop moving, they die. They have to keep water flowing over their gills in order to get oxygen. So if they don't do that, they die. So they have to keep swimming. So they have to keep swimming. Can they sleep? It's an interesting discussion. It's a conversation that we're going to have with Dr. Uh, Michael Kelly now. Dr. Kelly is a postdoctoral research fellow in neuroscience at Simon Fraser University. Dr. Kelly, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Shay. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, let's just, first of all, is, is it true? Do sharks need to keep moving or they will die? Or is that just some urban legend kind of thing? <clears throat> Well, look, it's not an urban legend. Uh, actually, when I was getting into the research myself uh, way back in 2015, that's pretty much all I'd heard yeah. as well. And I think that that's, you know, if your listeners just do do a Google search quite often, that's that's the that's the most obvious thing that comes up because when you watch shark documentaries, they're always kind of focusing on those sexy sharks like the great whites yeah, and yeah, the yeah. tigers and the makos. And that actually is true. So those that that group of sharks, uh, they're called ram ventilators. Okay. And so to facilitate gas exchange, they actually do have to keep moving forward, and that sort of passively pushes that oxygenated water over their gills. Okay. So that 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 that's fair. Uh, Is there another group only, of sharks that doesn't fit that category? That's right. Then? Exactly. So it's only that's that, that's only a half truth because there's this whole other group of sharks called buckle pumpers. Um, and they're actually able to remain inactive, so sitting on the seafloor, because they can manually uh, sort of gulp the salt, the the seawater, and push that manually okay. over their gills. Gotcha. So, so, so I think when you look, when you, when when I was looking at the literature some years ago, uh, sort of the prevailing theory, even amongst uh, sleep researchers and academics, was that buckle pumpers potentially do engage in sleep or can engage in sleep, but that ram ventilating species don't sleep because of this, you know, the, the fact that they have to uh, keep this constant forward motion. But uh, the thing is, we already know that that theory that a constantly moving animal can't sleep is debunked, right? So if we look at marine mammals, for example, um, we know that they're able to keep swimming and they sleep with one half of their brain at a time. And, uh, yep, that's how they get their sleep doing really? so. We know that there are some migratory birds that actually sleep while they're flying. Um, and so even us as humans, you know, when you think about it, when you're driving a car, it's quite naughty, but when you're driving a car and you're super sleepy, you can kind of go into these micro-sleeps where your eyes are open yeah. and, and you're looking at the road, but you're out. 
Um, so yeah, so look, uh, not not necessarily a valid theory, but uh, very curious nonetheless. Which is which is essentially why, well, part of the reason I undertook the research. Yeah. The other part is because I'm terrified of the animals. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so let's break those apart. First of all, it's it's trying to answer that question, like okay, if sharks have to keep moving, or you know, do all animal? I mean, how do sharks sleep? That was basically the question you were trying to answer, right? Well, yeah, or if they do, right? Because sure. I mean, they were one of the many animal groups that we knew nothing about. Um, I think the thing is that when you think about sleep research, we're always thinking about mammals, you know, cats and dogs and mice and whatever it might be. And there's kind of this just presumption that we sort of know that everything is sleeping. But the reality is we know very little about sleep in general and we know very little about how many animals actually sleep. But the one thing I will say is thus far every animal that we have studied does appear to sleep. In some way, though, but like you say, sleep, I mean, we, you know, we, we look at humans and your eyes are closed, maybe you're snoring, you're not moving. That's what we define as sleep, right? Do we need to change our definition of sleep? Absolutely. And that's, that's, a, that's a very, very uh, educated point that you've made there, in fact, because, I mean, even myself, right? Like, I'm a sleep researcher, but I'm a human too, so <laughs> I can't help but fall back into this perception of sleep, how we think of it, as you said, you know, lying down, perhaps, eyes yeah. closed, um, but the way that, that for, the form in which sleep takes is it's, it's insane how much it varies across the animal kingdom. I mean, even if you just take one aspect of sleep being sleep duration, so not, not necessarily the way the animal looks when it's sleeping, but certainly the amount of time it spends sleeping, the variation there is just, it's insane. Um, and then when we think about what sleep looks like, uh, same. Uh, you know, you've got animals that sleep with their eyes open, that are standing, that are moving, and this is not often attributes that we think of as sleep. And even that fact that I talked about with the constantly moving animals, with the um, unihemispheric sleep, that sleeping with one yeah. hemisphere uh, uh, awake and, and asleep, that, that kind of revolutionizes the way we even think about consciousness, right? Because these animals are sort of half conscious, half asleep, um, so yeah, sleep, sleep is a, it's a very quirky topic. So how, what do you define it as then? If it's not what we think, you know, eyes closed, not moving, what, like, is, is there some scientific determination of, oh, this person is asleep because of this? Look, yeah, you, obviously when you're doing research, you need sort of criteria or standards yeah, yeah. or protocols to work sort of within to start to identify it. And in fact, that kind of brings me to how we went about doing this research on, on sharks, because I guess most people don't really think about sleep research, but it's actually pretty tricky to, to, to identify sleep in anything but a human because you can't ask an animal, sure. well, like, are you asleep or were you asleep earlier when we videoed you? And so you, you have these sort of starting points and tests, uh, sort of gold standard tests that we use in the industry. And I kind of use this maybe childish analogy of Lego blocks. So you, you start with the foundation of a bunch of blocks that might be looking at just does an animal engage in, in conspicuous periods of inactivity, right? So... Yeah is the animal inactive at times? Now, we just said that inactivity isn't necessarily needed for sleep, right. but it's a starting point, right? And uh, so you look for that. And if, and, if not, and if not inactivity, at least activity patterns. So if the animal is constantly moving, does it sort of change the way it moves 
in, in, in a way that's predictable every day. Um, and so that's what we started with these animals. We took both these buckle-pumping sharks, yeah. so the ones that can remain inactive, and ram-ventilating sharks, the ones that have to swim continuously. And we took a bunch of species from the wild and we brought them into our labs and we then basically recorded endlessly for weeks and weeks on end to see what was going on with their activity patterns. And so what we found with the buckle pumping species is that indeed um, there are these very predictable patterns that they go through over a 24-hour day in which they're, in, in, the, in the case of the species that I was looking at, they were completely inactive during the day and became very active or significantly more active at night, suggesting that they're nocturnal. But then interesting, when we were looking at these uh, constantly moving animals, from the naked eye, yep, they were swimming around constantly, but we were actually recording the speed at which they swam and, and the distance that they covered. And we actually found that those animals also um, engage in these really predictable um, activity patterns, sort of going from maybe autopilot swimming to much more maybe uh, foraging-focused uh, swimming. But, but, but you think they're asleep at, at, at some point. I mean, to the naked eye, or if you're not observing them constantly, you might not recognize that something's changed, but you think they're sleep swimming, for lack of a better word. Well, yeah, I think, look, I think we need to be really careful because that was just the first tiny sure. little step. Um, if these guys were swimming constantly at the exact constant speed, that still doesn't mean that they weren't engaged, that they may not be engaging in swimming, but, uh, sorry, sleeping, but uh, it would have been trickier. So I guess it's sort of like the first indicator that perhaps there's something going on there. Um, now, we continued our research quite intensively with the buckle pumping species just because when an animal is stopping, it's just a little bit easier, right? Like this is the first time we'd ever looked at sleep in this, in this taxon, in this group of animals. And so we chose to move forward with these animals that, that engage in these conspicuous periods of inactivity. And so we moved on to these sleep-specific tests. And they're uh, testing for things like their responsiveness to external stimulation um, when they're inactive. So the idea is that if I poked you right now, you would feel it immediately and yep. you'd probably get quite, quite uh, upset with me. But if I poked you with the same force while you're asleep, you may, I may not actually get a response from you and I might need to shake you a little harder. Okay. And so in somewhat more scientific terms... <laughs> We tested this with uh, electrical pulse stimulation. We actually found that after five minutes of inactivity, um, these the, the sharks, their responsiveness dropped way off, and you really had to crank up that stimulation to get a response. And that, that's a very good indicator that they're falling asleep. That they're asleep, yeah. That's right. Um, we then tested for whether sleep is internally um, controlled. So in, 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 in us, in you and I, it's homeostatically regulated is the fancy term. It just means that basically it's regulated internally in that if you and I, for example, tonight get on the beers and we stay up till five o'clock in the morning, you're going to incur a sleep debt that you need to pay yeah. back. And so once we stop drinking, we're probably going to go to sleep and sleep the whole day, right? Yeah. As, as, as I'm sure... Well, I've definitely done it plenty of times. I don't know about yourself, but I hope my, I hope my dad's not Maybe listening. once or twice. Maybe once or twice. <laughs> but uh, we tested for that in these animals. So we, we basically did not allow them to go into that sleep state. You, you didn't fill them full of beer, did you? I didn't, no, I didn't, I didn't pour <laughs> beers into the tank. I might have had a few beers while I was doing the study because you've got to sit up for two days straight and you need something to fill your time. But no, we, 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 just, we basically gently 
poke them. It's called gentle tactile stimulation. So anytime right. the animals looked like they were going to rest on, this, on the bottom of the tank, you give them a poke and you make them swim. But interesting, what we found is there was no there was no rebound. It didn't once we stopped depriving them. Yeah, they didn't seem to then try to need to make up that sleep. Oh, um, so kind of confounding, right? Yeah. Um, we've actually seen this in some other um, uh, bony fish in in in, uh, in a marine environment. Uh, but I think that 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 kind of proved that when you when you're using behavioural tests alone. Um, it can be kind of misleading because animals can kind of seem like they're asleep and maybe they're meeting some of the criteria, but maybe not meeting others. And so I kind of like to say that behavior can lie, but physiology doesn't lie. Yeah. And so that that's the next step, obviously, that we took. Interesting. I, I wish we had more time, Michael. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but it just it just shows, I think, there's so many questions around sleep. You know, it's, it's still one of the mysteries out there, right? <laughs> Indeed, indeed. I'm sorry, I chatted, I chatted no, no, too long No, no, that's there. great. It was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. And like I say, I wish we had more time, but I do need to run. Thank you so much, though. No uh, problem, Shay. Yeah, Thanks I appreciate so much. it. Ta-da. That is Dr. Michael Kelly, who's a postdoctoral research fellow in neuroscience at Simon Fraser University. And yeah, I mean, sleep is just, it's one of those things that I just don't think we, uh, we fully understand yet. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts, If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.